Blog Talk Radio. Welcome. Today our topic is five common mistakes found in law firm employee handbooks. Joining us is Michael Cohen, partner with Dwayne Morris LLP in the firm's employment services practice group. A highly sought-after speaker, he's trained and counseled employees throughout the country on employment subjects, including harassment prevention, diversity, discipline, hiring, firing, recruiting, performance evaluations, and compliance. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Julie. Thanks so much for having me. Hi. It's great to have you. You know, the subject of employee handbooks, I can tell you from my own personal experience that every time I was handed one, first day on the job, the HR person invariably said, "Uh, you know, it's out of date. We're working on a new one. And then, you know, I never saw the new one. Now, why would that be? (laughs) Because organizations, unfortunately, at times don't take these seriously enough. And given what is, has become the ever-changing nature of employment law and human resources law, you put your firm really in a position of peril if you're not on top of the changes in the law and then what has to become the attendant changes in your handbook and in your policies. Mm-hmm. And especially for law firms, you would think, ironically, they would be the first, first ones to be compliant and on top of those updates, correct? And you would think that. You would think um, and that, yes. You would think that. However, that is not, unfortunately, always the way it plays itself out in real life. Uh, we are very much, at times, a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do kind of industry, and we need to get better. Okay. Well, let's get right into those top five common mistakes that law firms do make when developing their employee handbooks. Let's start at number five, ignoring the necessity to train your employees on critical policies. Yeah, and it's funny what what you mentioned, uh, Julie, right at the top, which is organizations, law firms are always saying things like the the handbook's in flux, the handbook is in a little bit of a state of disarray, we're in the process of updating it. Mm -hmm. And this training piece of it becomes crucial because here's the reality, and most HR professionals, most administrators and law firms recognize this, your employees are not reading your handbooks. Uh, I joke all the time that if you have an employee in a law firm who has read your handbook from cover to cover from page one to page 86, uh, we have a word for that employee. And what that employee is called is plaintiff because there is a pretty good chance that that employee is going to sue you at some point because people don't typically sit down and read handbooks from cover to cover. Um, And I will get a call, given the nature of my practice, I'll get a call, you know, several times a year. We just revamped our handbook. We've just updated it. That's great. We want you to come in and train on our handbook. And I always pause because I think training on a handbook and what most organizations think about when deal with that idea is we need to go through the policies and train employees. And my question, of course, is how quickly do you want your employees to fall asleep? Because you can be the most dynamic speaker in the world if you are sitting there reading from policies and talking to employees about sort of the mundane policies that exist in the handbook, mm-hmm. you're going to lose employees. Now, that is not to say of course, that I don't think you should train employees. And I think you should train employees on handbook ideas and handbook concepts. But I don't think you want to sit down with employees and say to them, this is what our corrective counseling policy says. This is what our confidentiality policy says. This is what our policy on employment of relatives and on 
email says it's going to bore employees to tears and they're not going to Absolutely. get anything out of it. What I, what I think needs to be done and the best way to do something like this is by breaking it down by subjects. So let's talk to employees and have a conversation with managers and supervisors, uh, partners and shareholders and managers within your firm about the importance of documenting performance and work into those kinds of trainings your corrective counseling policy, your policy on drafting performance appraisals. Let's have a training, again, for partners, for managers, for administrators, on FMLA, on the Americans with Disabilities Act. We're not, again, going to sit there and read from what the policy says because they can do that. What we want to do is train them on the practical application of the policies. So, again, you, you get the you get the call, and the call says we want you to train on a handbook, and the answer, I think, should be no, but here's what we can do. Here's the way it should happen, and this is the way administrators should be talking to their folks about handbooks. It's not what the policy says. It's, and obviously, there will be some conversation about what the policy says, but the overarching theme is here's the practical application of the policies that we currently have in place. There and what is going to be... Oh, I'm yeah, sorry, what Julie, it's going to mean to the employee. I mean, as you say, I think you hit it on the nail, the practical application. What does it mean to me doing my job in an effective and efficient way and my quality That's of work? exactly right. That's right. And okay. what do we need to do to be legally compliant? There are, there are states like California, like Connecticut, where there are mandatory training laws on things like sexual harassment or harassment prevention. And you're obviously going to have an EEO policy, which we'll talk about a little bit later in this podcast. You're going to have an EEO policy that's updated and that accurately, accurately reflects what the law says. But if you're a California employer, if you're a Connecticut employer of a certain size, you have to provide, to, you have to provide certain types of training for supervisor, supervisory level and above employees every two years. So we've got to make sure when we're dealing with our handbooks, again, we accurate, they accurately reflect what the law says. We've got to make sure we're training our employees, our managers, our partners, our shareholders, our associates, our staff on the practical application of these policies. Okay, moving on to number four. Not applying recent LGBT decisions to your handbook. Yeah, and, and we're getting better at this. Um, mm -hmm. and, but in, unless you've been under sort of an extraordinarily large and heavy rock over the last several years, we realize that there have been dramatic, dramatic changes in the legal landscape as it relates to LGBT uh, situations. And one of the areas in your handbook where you need to make sure that you have kept up with the times is in your EEO policy, in, re, in your Equal Employment Opportunity Policy, your Anti-Harassment Policy, your Anti-Discrimination Policy, your Complaint Procedure. Uh, sexual orientation is a protected class in 21 states plus the District of Columbia. Gender identity and expression is a protected class in 18 states plus the District of Columbia. Notwithstanding that fact, there are many, many federal and state jurisdictions, federal and state courts that have allowed claims to go forward under what are called sex stereotyping, gender, uh, sex stereotyping or gender nonconformity theories, even in states where sexual orientation and gender identity are not protected classes. So in this day and age, not to have expressly listed as protected classes in your EEO policy, things like sexual orientation, things like mm -hmm. gender identity and expression, I think on its best day it is naive. More realistically, I think it's potentially dangerous because we want to make sure that all of our employees understand that people simply cannot be treated differently 
based on their sexual orientation, based on their gender identity. Um, you know, what some firms will do is they'll use this magic catch-all language in their EEO policy, things like, and membership in any other class protected by law. And I think that kind of language is helpful because you don't want to have to update your handbook or your policy every time an additional protected class is added in a jurisdiction in which your firm operates. But I think what you want to make sure of is that you're looking through, the, and, and many firms operate in many different jurisdictions, and there are going to be classes protected differently under different state or even local law, and you want to make sure your EEO, your EEO policy covers each of those protected classes, and then add the magic language, the catch-all language. Um, there's this, another portion, given the, the recent DOMA decision, the Windsor decision, um, as it relates to Family Medical Leave Act. Uh, under the Federal Family Medical Leave Act, we all know that an employee can take, under certain circumstances, an employee can take 12 weeks of job protected benefit continued unpaid leave for the serious health condition of an immediate family member. Well, an immediate family member is defined under law as spouse, parent, or child. Since the DOMA decision, and the way spouse had been defined was opposite sex spouse. Since the DOMA decision, what the courts have said and the Department of Labor, I should say the Department of Labor has said is as of right now, um, if you live in a state where same-sex marriage is recognized, not work in a state, if you live in a state where same-sex marriage is recognized, you are entitled, and you are married, um, you are entitled to Family Medical Leave Act leave for the serious health condition of your same-sex partner. Now, the Department of Labor has issued um, a document basically saying, we want to change that from state of residence to state of ceremony. And what that would do is it would say, basically, if you are part of a same-sex marriage, you are entitled, regardless of where you live, regardless of where you work, you will be entitled to 12 weeks of job protected benefit continued unpaid leave under the FMLA for the serious health condition of your same-sex spouse. So even as we sit here today with the state of residence, the DOL has expanded the coverage of the FMLA, and if uh, it goes further, it will apply to everybody in a same-sex marriage. Just real quick, a couple of other policies you want to look at as it relates to LGBT issues. Um, appearance policies, big area right now with regards to transgendered employees. I always recommend that appearance policies be gender neutral, that we don't say women should wear this and men should wear this because the last time I checked, it's not 1955. And these anachronistic stereotypes that, that, you know, I'm not sure they ever had any validity to them, but they certainly don't now. And we want to make sure that people come dressed comfortably, productive, the best way that they can. And people don't come, you know, and people get concerned, well, what if a man comes to work dressed as a woman? What if a woman comes to work dressed as a man? You know, A, number one, who cares? And B, it doesn't happen. Unless somebody's going through the gender reassignment process, and if that is the case, um, Michelle, who's becoming Michael and is presenting full-time as Michael as part of his therapy, is going to come to work dressed as a man because he is a man. So I think it's important to make these kinds of policies gender neutral. Well, counting down to number three, not realizing that the National Labor Relations Act actually applies to your firm. Yes, yeah, huge issue. So this is, and this is very surprising, when I spoke at the ALA's annual conference this past year in Toronto, 
Um, this was something that came up several times, and I would bring it up in talks, and you would see the, the looks on the administrators and the HR professional spaces as if to say, what are you talking about? And what I'm talking about is the National Labor Relations Board uh, general counsel and, and members of the board as well are literally and virtually traveling about the country to let non-union employees know that they too are protected by the provisions of the National Labor Relations Act. And the reason they're doing that is because they are. Even if you are not an organization bound by a collective bargaining agreement, your employees, your non-supervisory employees, your employees are covered by the dictates of the National Labor Relations Act. And what that means is if you as a law firm violate the National Labor Relations Act and, for example, were to terminate an employee in violation of the NLRA, that employee would be entitled to job restoration, to job reinstatement, and back pay. So there are several provisions that the National Labor Relations Board in employee handbooks have made clear, even in the non-union context, are violative of the law. One of the bigger areas is where firms will have non-disparagement language in their policies. Making statements like you having policies or provisions in their code of conduct that say things like, you're not allowed to make disparaging remarks about our law firm or about the members of our law firm. And that, the National Labor Relations Board would say, is a clear violation of Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act. They would say that and em employees have the right to engage in concerted activity. They have the right to talk to each other in a negative way, if they were to want to, about the terms and conditions of their employment. So the way the NLRB has interpreted these non-disparagement provisions in a handbook is they violate Section 7. They chill an employee's ability to talk negatively about the terms and conditions of their employment. That has been extended recently, not so recently, over the last couple of years, to social media. Um, oh. We as law firms, hopefully at this point, because, and again, law firms very often are not the most progressive in their dealing with these sort of new areas, and social media, please hear me, is not a new area anymore. Um, social media is not going anywhere. It's not a fad. It, to the extent the organization, to the extent your firm does not have an effective social media policy in place, as we sit here today, do it now. You know, I mean, it's, it's, you're, you're already way late. But one of the areas where firms, when we were, you know, initially drafting social media policies, we would put this non-disparagement language in there. We would say you can't make disparaging comments, engage in disparaging conduct about the firm or its employees or its products and services via social media. And there is now a fairly well-developed line of cases in the social media context that talks about the fact that you can't do that, that if employees are via social media engaging in behavior that is disparaging towards the organization that relates to terms and conditions of employment, you can't take action against the employee for doing that. So we need to make sure that our policies are in compliance with the National Labor Relations Act as it relates to disparagement, as it relates to general employee conduct. There was a case brought where an organization, it's not a law firm, but again, it applies to all non-union employers as well, where an organization had a general rule requiring employees to be respectful, that they not use profanity, that they display courtesy at all times. And the NLRB said that that was an unlawful provision because it could encroach on an employee's ability, uh, on an employee's protective rights under the NLRA. 
that could be interpreted to prevent an employee from asserting claims under the National Labor Relations Act. And the NLRB found that provision to be in violation of the law. So we've got to be aware, not only of the kinds of, kinds of laws that we typically are accustomed to dealing with, but we've got to make sure that we are comfortable with the dictates of the National Labor Relations Act. And counting down to number two, failing to recognize the real risks associated with federal and state wage and hour laws. Yeah, and this is another one, again, unless you've been trapped under an extraordinarily large, and the rock would probably have to be bigger and even heavier than we were talking about the rock with the LGBT issues. Um, claims brought under the Fair Labor Standards Act, federal wage and hour law, claims brought under state wage and hour laws. There are, there are law firms, there are lawyers, who are not getting rich, they are getting generationally wealthy, suing other organizations on behalf of classes of employees for violating federal and state wage and hour law. And I'm not sure why law firms don't entirely get this, since, again, we are sort of duty-bound to follow the law. But we have, for example, I've talked to law firms where, you know, we talk about overtime, and what they'll say to me is, well, all of our employees are, are exempt which is not possible. It, it, it is almost impossible to find an organization like a law firm where all employees are exempt, which means they would not right. be entitled to receive overtime. So there are certain things in our handbooks that we have to do as it relates to wage and hour laws. Number one, we want to make sure that we define who is exempt and who is not exempt and what that means. And I don't mean by position, and I don't mean certainly obviously by individual, but we want to explain what an exempt employee is and what a non-exempt employee is, making clear that only non-exempt employees are entitled to overtime. As we relate to exempt employees, we need to, because in law firms, we are going to have a huge number of exempt employees, given the nature of what it is we do. We want to make sure one of the most important things we have for an exempt employee is what is called a safe harbor, a safe harbor provision. What it's, as part of, in order to prove an employee is an exempt employee, it's not enough to prove that the employee is paid on a salary basis. They have to be paid on a salary basis and they have to have exempt duties. But as we talk about this salary basis, what happens sometimes is if the firm administrator, if the human resources professional in the firm don't fully appreciate or really understand the intricacies of the FLSA, um, they make improper deductions. And if you're making improper deductions from an exempt employee's pay, you may render that employee non-exempt. Not only may you render that employee non-exempt, you may render every other employee in a similar classification who uh, reports to the same supervisor as non-exempt. So what the Department of Labor has understood is that organizations will make mistakes because this is a complicated law. And they have suggested, and I think it's, it's almost mandatory, I think it is mandatory really for an employer, to have a safe harbor provision in your, in your handbook, which makes clear that we prohibit as a firm the making of improper deductions from employees, recognizing that if it were to happen, we have a complaint mechanism in place for our exempt employees, and here is what they do. We also will say in this policy that if an improper deduction is made, we will reimburse no later than the next paycheck, and that we are going to make a good faith commitment to all future compliance. This kind of policy is mandatory, I believe, these days. Because when the improper deductions are made in the absence of this safe harbor provision, you do run the risk of ending up with the situation where not only is that employee treated as non-exempt, 
but every other employee reporting to that supervisor in a similar uh, job classification also will be treated as non-exempt. Really can be dangerous. The safe harbor provision is, really is crucial. Um, as it relates to non-exempt employees, there are certain types of provisions you want in your compensation policies as well. You want to talk to them about unpaid breaks. And this, again, is a, a huge issue and I think a pretty fertile ground potentially for plaintiff's lawyers bringing collective actions. Uh, because I can't think of the number of times where an assistant is sitting at his or her desk having lunch and I see a partner or an associate go up to that assistant and say, look, I just need you to do this. It'll only take you five minutes. That's potentially the real problem if that's an unpaid break. Because what the law says, you know, what the Department of Labor regulations say really is that if you have a break that is 20 minutes in duration or longer, uh, 21 minutes or longer, it doesn't have to be paid. The problem is that's not the enforcement position the Department of Labor has taken. The enforcement position that DOL has taken consistently is breaks of less than 30 minutes have to be paid. So really that's the landscape under which we're operating. If you have somebody who has a break of under 30 minutes, it has to be paid. So let's say we have a meal break provision in our policy and we say you have a 30 minute break for lunch and you have an assistant who constantly and continually is interrupted during his or her break for five minutes. Well, that break is no longer an unpaid break. That break has to be a paid break. So what we need to make sure of is that we have a policy, and this is one of those things, again, where we've got to train our supervisors and managers and our partners and our associates about the fact that they, this break must be given. And, it, and if it's not given, or if something happens, you want to have something in your handbook and your policies that makes clear for the employee whose break is being messed with, for lack of a better phrase, that mm -hmm. they will notify their supervisor if, A, they don't take their break, if, B, they don't take the full 30 minutes, if, C, they're required to work during their break. We want to make sure that the employees understand that this is what they are to do in the event that this happens. Um, I think also with regard to non-exempt employees, you want to have a correction procedure in place. Um, and these are the kinds of circumstances typically in a law firm environment that will apply. Um, and that is if you work before you sign in or log in, if you work after you sign out or log out, if you skip, if you take less than your 30-minute break, if you work during your break, if you work outside of your normal work hours or you work at home, these are all the kinds of things for which employees have to let their supervisors know because they are entitled to compensation, which of course means that partners and associates need to understand that when they interrupt the break, that when they send the email to the assistant who has an iPhone or a Blackberry or a mobile device of some kind and is expected to check it from home, that is all compensable time. Finally, okay, well, we have to, oh, I'm, we have to move on to number one because we're running out of oh, time. Oh, okay, go ahead. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Okay, let's um, move on to the importance of not updating your EEO opportunity policy. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is one of the big ones still, and, and that is we have to make sure that our EEO policy, our equal employment opportunity, stays with the times. Um, Law firms always talk about having a commitment to diversity and the importance of diversity, uh, but it can't just be talk. Um, a couple of numbers for you. Between 2012 and 2013, the percentage of charges 
of discrimination brought with the EEOC against legal service providers increased 140%. That's a huge number. It's a scary number for law firms. And the reason, yeah, and the reason that was happening, really there's two reasons. One, law firms lagged behind a little bit in terminating employees when the economy went into the toilet. And second, as law firms, our employees know their rights better than other employees because they're surrounded by lawyers and surrounded by the law every day. So we need to make sure our EEO policy does a couple of things. One, it, you know, I still see anti-harassment policies that are sex harassment policies. Well, that's not good enough. An anti-harassment policy or an anti-harassment provision has to deal with all of the classes protected under law, whether we're talking about sex, race, color, religion, national origin, age, disability, orientation, gender identity, any of these kinds of things. So we need to make sure that it goes beyond just sex. Uh, in 2006, there was a United States Supreme Court case decided called Burlington Northern, which dealt with retaliation in the workplace. And basically, among other things, what that case made very, very clear is your EEO policy needs to have a standalone anti-retaliation provision. Uh, you need to talk about the importance of not retaliating against employees or others in, who have brought complaints or others involved in the investigatory process. And the court really warned, the court really made clear that it thought the best way to do this, number one, you need to have the language. And they thought you really should do it in a standalone policy, which can be part of your EEO policy, but it needs to be its own provision in the policy. We need to make clear that all, again, as I mentioned with the sexual orientation example, all relevant protected classes are included in your EEO policy. Talk in your EEO policy about its application to everybody, to employees and non-employees alike, that it applies not just to verbal, applies not just to behavior, but it applies to Internet searches, emails, text messages, and, yeah, social media for sure. Um, I like to include in EEO policy things that are not defenses to inappropriate conduct, the kinds of things that I, when I do investigations, hear from people who are trying to squirm out of the trouble into which their mouth or their behavior has gotten them, things like I didn't mean any harm. Things like the conduct was not directed at that person. Things like I am a very important person here. You know, the kinds of things that people say out loud in front of other human beings, which still baffles me, but they clearly are not defenses. And finally, and this is something that shouldn't be news, but firms still don't have done the right way, is we've got to have an effective complaint procedure. There has to be a complaint procedure, a complaint mechanism in place that allows employees to bypass, for example, their supervisor or the partner for whom he or she is doing work. You know, this idea of chain of command makes me throw up a little bit in my own mouth because <laughs> the idea of a chain of command in the law firm environment, basically what it says is you bring the complaint to me so that nobody else finds out about it because that's what happens. So we need to have a, an effective complaint procedure that says something along the lines of you could talk to any supervisor or manager, any partner or shareholder, any member of human resources, any administrator, the person with whom you are most comfortable speaking. And for me, you want to make sure those, there is diversity among those people to whom the employee can complain, that there are men, there are women, there are people of color, there are people of certain ages to the extent feasible sexual orientations, those kinds of things that we really do represent the diversity that the firm has in the complaint mechanism itself. Great. Well, that brings us to the end of our podcast. Thanks to our guest, Michael Cohen, for your expertise on avoiding common mistakes in employee handbooks. 
Michael will be a featured speaker on this very subject this fall at ALA's Business of Law Conferences coming to a city near you. Visit the ALA website, www.alanet.org, for more info. And thanks, everyone, for joining us today.